So a few years ago, I had a friend visiting from uh, New Jersey, and he wanted to see the Sanavir Mission. And I've lived here for a long time. I'd never seen it. So I thought, great, I'll take you. So it was summertime, like July. So we pulled into a 7-Eleven. I said, let's get a drink first. It's hot out. And I grabbed one of these. And he laughed. He thought it was like a joke thing. He said, that's kind of big, don't you think? I said, no, you're going to need one too. And he said, no, really, I'll just get a little can of soda. I said, no, trust me. You're new to the desert. Get one of these. He said, all right. Kind of like, okay, this ought to be fun. Can I, you take my picture with it? You know, I guess back in cool, moist country, this is ridiculous. But those of you in Tucson are like, really? They thought that was weird? Yeah, it was like a weird cultural shock thing that he would find that a weird thing. And sure enough, we filled this up and probably in less than an hour, we both had dusted ours. And I was thirsty, and you know, I was looking for more water while we were at the mission, and I saw this big cooler, you know, like you know, you'd have at a football game or something. So I, I w was behind it, and I was going to go around and refill up my, my thing, and it said, holy water. I was like, whoa! <laughs> Never take a Jewish guy to a Catholic church. <laughs> Just doesn't work out. You know, water's important when you live in the desert. I, I took a trip. I was doing like a, seeing some of the sites where the Apostle Paul did his ministry up in Turkey. And um, I was the guy from Tucson. Everybody else on the trip was like from Michigan. And so we stop at a certain place, and the tour guide, he says, Steve, tell us all what you see. He, he just, you picking on me? Why are you asking me? And I said, well, I see a lot of water. See, he wanted to ask the Tucson guy because the people from Michigan are used to water. That wouldn't have stuck out to them. In fact, I said a lot of water and some of them chuckled because it was probably just a brook. You know, you could step over the thing. If you're from Michigan, the land of 10,000 lakes, that's a joke. But for a guy from the desert, that was a lot of water. I mean, that water was just sitting there running like somebody left a big hose on all day, all the time. The thing went for miles. It was cool crisp, fresh water. I like that stuff. And he wanted to help the people understand the perspective people from the desert have, because the Bible was written, for the most part, from that perspective. And people don't understand when the Bible talks about water, it means something different to desert people. We understand the value of water much more than most people. Now, we're very fortunate in our culture. We just turn the tap. You got fresh, clean water. You know, I, uh, I've got an app on my phone. It actually reminds me to drink because I, I never drink enough. And then I get outside and I'm like, Ugh. so it just every once in a while says, dude, have you had enough to drink? And I hit a button and it says, keep going, you're getting there. <laughs> Cheers me up. <laughs> you know how much water you're supposed to drink? I've talked to people who work outside. You ready for this? Those of you from back east, you ready for this? People who work outside in the desert in the summer can drink a gallon of water an hour. Yeah. I work in the air conditioning. This will do for me for, you know, half the day. But when I'm outside, that's gone in an hour. Easy. It's for real. So how much water do you need to drink? They say eight glasses a day. That's nonsense. I mean, think about it. A woman who weighs 100 pounds drinks eight glasses a day, and a guy who weighs 220 work eight glasses a day. He's outside digging ditches in 105-degree weather, and she's inside an office building. They both need eight glasses a day. 
So there's no set formula to how much water you drink, but they've come up with one, which is half an ounce for every pound of body weight. That's supposed to be your thing. Now, if you're outside exercising and running, it's more, but generally speaking, now you do the calculation real quick and you think, man, I don't drink anywhere near that much. You probably don't. You probably should get a little app on your phone too. You're probably dehydrated. So I want to talk to you about water. Um, and so I brought up some water. Imagine you're out in the Tucson sun. It's 105 degrees out. You're like dripping. And you come inside and you want a glass of water. So fortunately, we've got this nice little bubbler. And we just get a... Oh, listen to that. Look at the bubbles jumping up there. Isn't that nice? And again, for those of you from back east, you don't believe that. That's a swallow. You throw it down and you fill it again and you throw it down and you fill it again. And then you sit down and you go... And then you melt for the next hour or so. Now, got some other water here. Which would you choose? <laughs> it's like, duh. Really, Steve? Yeah, kind of really. Because listen to this passage of scripture from Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That would give you an idea of a cistern. A cistern is a hole you dig in the ground, line it with some rocks or something so it holds some water, and then you catch the runoff. And that becomes your bathing water, your cooking water, and your drinking water. And I imagine catching your runoff in some places might look something like that. I don't want to drink out of that. Now, you live out in the middle of the desert where there's no water. You're thankful to have it. But really, I'd rather have this. So God's talking to his people, and he says, I am the fountains of living water, and you've rejected me for broken cisterns that don't even hold water. What are you thinking? Why would anybody, why would anybody choose this one over this one? You're saying they wouldn't. You're right, they wouldn't. So why would people reject God? For idols or for nothingness. This is, it, it blows God's mind. And this is the illustration he wants people to have. Water is vital to well-being. And so water is used as a metaphor throughout the Bible. It's, it, it represents lots of things. So there's this time, Jesus is walking through the desert, and he gets to this village in Samaria, and his disciples leave to go to town, maybe to get some food or whatever. And there's a woman at the well. And he says, give me a drink. And she says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans, we don't even talk. You're asking me to give you a drink? What's up? This really blew her mind. See, in our culture, we don't understand that. Let's go back to the 40s or the 50s with segregation. Separate restaurants for white and black people. Separate bathrooms. Back of the bus. Now, I'm too young to have lived through that. But I can imagine that, what a horrible environment that is. And the typical prejudiced person then wouldn't go into the black restaurant and order food. They just wouldn't do it. This was that kind of prejudice. And she said, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? But Jesus wasn't prejudiced. Jesus wasn't that way. And so it blew her mind. And so they started talking. And he started saying things about her life that just she realized he was a prophet. 
she really had no idea who she was talking to. But so he asked for a drink, and then he says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So God offers us eternal life through Jesus Christ. We can choose him, the fountains of living waters, or plan B, hewn out our own cisterns that hold no water, and get the dregs of whatever's left. That's how God sees it. Fountains of living water, or my theologically astute word for this kind of water, yuckus. Those are our two options in the spiritual world. And God throws it out so we can see it that plainly. So why do people then, in the spiritual realm, choose this over this? Why? God asked the exact same question over against the children of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Those might be the three worst words in the entire Bible. Became worthless themselves. You have to understand, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you've been to the Grand Canyon or to the ocean or to any of the forests, you just look at the sky at night and just go, wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. And then God made things we can't see that are just as amazing and even more amazing. God made angels. Those are amazing. But you know the pinnacle of God's creation? The greatest thing that God made? Humans. We're the crown of his creation. He values us above angels. And he asked Israel, what did I do that you chose to abandon me for this? For the yuckiest. Chapter 2, Jeremiah, the, thing is, the whole thing is about Israel abandoning God with a passion. Not just leaving God, but doing it with joy and pursuing idols with reckless abandon. And God throws out the challenge. You've given this for this? You've, you've traded me for idols? Wow. W what did I do wrong that you didn't find me a good God anymore? Was it all the blessings I gave you? What? There's no answer. It's a rhetorical question. But it magnifies the shame and the situation. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You ever heard that expression, you are what you eat? How does somebody become worthless? Or how about the computer uh, saying, garbage in, garbage out? Whatever you put into your computer, that's what you're going to get out of your computer. Whatever you put into your body, that's what's going to happen to your body. Whatever you put into your mind, that's what your mind's going to think. Today's sermon is called, What You Do Defines You. See, things we do affect our nature. Do you understand that? Things that we do have an impact on who and what we become. So I, I, I wanted to, to make a point about what we do affects our nature. So just bear with me a moment here. God created us to be vessels of glory. You know, I like art. I like fine art. 
I, I'm not into, you know, what most people consider fine art when you look at it and you say, what is that? My three-year-old could have done that. Why is that worth a million dollars? I'm not into that kind of art. I'm into the kind of art that takes a lot of skill to make. When you can look at a piece of art, be it a portrait or a landscape, and you just go, wow, how did they do that? Or a piece of pottery that's just beautifully crafted. Imagine a piece of pottery. How many of you have ever seen a show like the Antiques Roadshow? Let me see your hand. Yeah, it's fun to see this piece of pottery and they say, where, where was that? Well, that was in my attic. It's been there for 30 years. Well, I, I, I don't think you'll keep it there now because that's worth $3 million. <laughs> Imagine having a nice piece of pottery worth, say, $3 million and taking it to the local bar and saying, hey, I got you a new spittoon. Just put that on the floor so people can spit their tobacco in there. Who would do that? God has made us for noble purposes, but what we have become and what we do, some of us are like this spittoon. We're God's greatest creation, but through our moral decisions or immoral decisions, we take something that is beautiful and amazing and we use it in a way that's well far beneath us. I um, don't like dirty dishes but I don't like cleaning them either. I'm not very good at it. You see, I don't think you should take a $3 million piece of art and turn it into a spittoon. I don't even think you should take a nice white shirt and clean a dish with it. That's nothing. That was a 50 cent shirt. Gotta love the Salvation Army. But that's what has happened to humans. We have made for these noble purposes and we've debased ourselves and ruined ourselves and yuckified ourselves. We have forgotten the high calling that God has called us to. What we do defines us. Things we do affect our nature. We are created for higher purposes. Well, I've got two stories for you about what you do defines you, a negative one and a positive one, both true stories. Let me read to you. First, I won't mention the guy's name. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Then I'll give you his name. He was born on April 29, 1938, to a homemaker and a stockbroker. This is in New York or Cleveland, some place where there was some money and affluence. Had a nice life. He graduated from Hofstra University in 1960 with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. Nice family, nice education. Founded a Wall Street firm dealing with investment securities. His firm began using innovative computer information technology that became the NASDAQ. So basically his firm invented the NASDAQ. His firm in 2008 was the sixth largest market maker on Wall Street. In 1991, he and his wife contributed about $240,000 to federal candidates and parties and committees, including $25,000 a year from 2005 to 2008 to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Let me read to you another sentence. Bernie Madoff essentially became rich via the Ponzi scheme using it from the 1970s onward. In 2009, Madoff pled guilty to 11 federal felonies. He was worth an estimated 
$800 million of stolen cash when he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. The next year, his son hung himself. What you do defines you. He had it all. Education, money, anything you could possibly have, and yet he made bad choices. He chose the broken cistern that holds no water instead of the fountains of living water, and that was the end result for Bernie Madoff. I'm sorry to say, he became worthless and took a bunch of people down with him. Doing bad things affects our nature. We do bad, we become bad. Doing good things can affect our nature too. We can do good and become good. Maybe you've heard of Booker T. Washington from the Tuskegee Institute. I read his uh, autobiography, fascinating book. See, Booker T. Washington was born a slave, but he was like six years old or something when the Emancipation Act hit. So by the time he was working age to get a job in the salt mines at nine, he could actually have a job, not as a slave, making income at nine. At 10, he upgraded to the coal mines because it paid better till he found out that the coal mine owner wanted a houseboy and he went working for the wife of the coal miner, the coal mine owner. And she said, son, get an education. Whatever you do, get an education. So he did. He got older. He saved all of his money, which was enough to buy him a train ticket to the town near where he could get an education. When he got there, he slept under porches because he didn't have two thin dimes to rub together. Would do any kind of work he could do just to put himself through school. Eventually, he graduated from the Hampton Agricultural Institute in 1872. In 1875, he became a teacher. And then he became the principal of the Tuskegee Negro Normal Institute around 1888. Now let me read to you from an article about Booker T. Washington. The Tuskegee Negro Normal Institute was opened on the 4th of July, 1888. The school was originally a shanty building owned by the local church. By the way, throughout his autobiography, he's always talking about God and stuff. Um, it wasn't a Christian book but I'm not surprised at all if this man would have been the man drinking from the fountains of living water based on what I read in his book. So he uh, got the shanty from the local church. The school only received funding of uh, about $2,000 a year, which was enough to pay for the staff. Eventually, Washington was able to borrow money from the treasurer of the Hampton Agricultural Institute to purchase an abandoned plantation on the outskirts of Tuskegee, and he built his own school. The school taught academic subjects, but emphasized practical education. This included farming, carpentry, and brick making. This enabled the students to become involved in the building of the new school. So they had school, uh, talents, they built their own school. Plus they could work to make money for school. Now some of you going to school and you have to work your way through school and you've taken out loans and stuff. Let me tell you how these guys did it. Students worked long hours arising at five in the morning and finishing at 9.30 every night. 5 to 9.30, Monday through Saturday. School, work, school, work, school, work. It's all they knew. Who made them go to school? Nobody. They were former slaves, and they knew 
that the one route to success for them would be through education. And they would give anything, including their life's blood, to get a good education. Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding, get knowledge. And these men did it. In 1901, President Theodore Roosevelt invited Washington to visit him in the White House. Both Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 1909, and William Taft, 1909 to 1913, they both used Washington and his advice for making appointments for African Americans in this country. He went from a slave boy working in a salt mine to an advisor to two presidents, started a school that served hundreds and hundreds of students. What's the difference between him and Madoff? Well, Madoff hasn't died yet. That's about it. By the way, Booker wanted to die at his school, so when he was very sick and close to death, he got on a train and went back to his school, and he died on the campus. Over 8,000 people showed up at his funeral. What you do defines you. White guy in affluent home crashed and burned and took millions with him. Black guy born a slave in the worst of circumstances living under porches influenced our nation for the great and advised two presidents and helped thousands of people step out of the roots of slavery and into a good productive life. Two very different men, two very different outcomes. One hewed out his own broken cistern that held no water, and I'm fairly confident the other drank from the fountains of living waters. Jeremiah chapter 2 has a lesson for us today. We get to choose. It's our choice with God. But these are the only two choices. And I would advise you to choose wisely. If you've not yet made a commitment to following Jesus, this is how you choose God. First of all, you have to understand that we are sinful. That means we do things and are something within ourselves that is not good, displeasing to God, unholy. We're broken. We have all sorts of potential to do bad. Yes, we have potential to do good too, but wouldn't it be right if we just had potential for good and not potential for bad? Why do we have potential for bad? We're broken. That's called sin, that brokenness. We've got to recognize that and reject that aspect of our being, believing that Jesus died for us and rose again. He died to pay the penalty for our sins, to purify us, if we believe Jesus died for our sins and pledge our allegiance to him, he will forgive us our sins. As the scripture says, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then instead of having a broken cistern that'll hold no water, you can have within yourself a fountain of living waters flowing out of you in the spiritual realm. I encourage you to make the decision to follow Jesus if you haven't. For those of you at home, our web pastor would be happy to lead you in a prayer, even there online. For those of you in the house, we've got a prayer room. We've got some prayer people that will be over there with you in just a couple of moments. If you've already given your life to Jesus, 
Make sure you feed the good side and not the bad side. Make sure you use yourself appropriately until Jesus comes back and sets it all good again. We have the opportunity to do good things, and I encourage you to do them. Giving money to a pastor who needs oral surgery. Say, well, I'm not rich. It's not about how much you put in. It's just about the heart of helping. Put in a quarter. If that's all you can afford, it's, a, it's, it's helping. It's participating. I loved Michael's thing. You know, when he said he wanted to feed the hungry, I was like, yeah, there's a gazillion places in town doing that. Okay, whatever. Just join one of them. But he said, no, no, no. I want to give Christians the opportunity to show love somehow. Ah, now you got my attention. Because I want to do good things. How do I do them? So it's not how much you give. It's that you give. It's getting our heart, you know, what you do defines you starting to do good things. This is a good thing. And by the way, you can use those boxes in the aisles too. Once a month during communion, we collect money for those in need within our own family here at Book of Life. So if you got some extra money or even want to dig into your heart, put some money in there to help people pay for groceries or pay their electric bill, you're, you're entitled to do so. We give you that opportunity.